Well, good morning. So, as we continue our series in Genesis, typically when you think of memorable passages in the early portions of Genesis, you might think of creation or the fall in Genesis 3, then you have Noah and the flood, maybe even the Tower of Babel. In terms of memorable passages, our passage this morning is not likely high on the list as it's a genealogy. Yet, that's where we find ourselves this morning. So, and you might not believe me, but I'm actually really excited to preach this passage because I think there's a lot of rich themes in it that we're going to look at. And so my goal is that you would never read Genesis 5 the same again. Now, that might sound arrogant or an unattainable goal, but if you're like me at all, you've probably skimmed or just outright skipped Genesis 5 in your yearly Bible reading, so I don't have a huge bar to clear in that regard. So I think I'll be able to meet that one this morning. So back, um, it's about 10 years ago or so, I had just graduated from college, and I was interning at a church in the Central Valley of California. It was a small church, and the average age of the congregation, I like to joke, is, was 75 years old, which actually isn't too much of a joke if you looked at the ages of everyone there. But one of the pastoral duties that I had was to visit other people in the hospital, other church members, and shut-ins. And as you imagine, with a church that old, there were quite a few people I would visit in the hospital. But one day after work, as was my normal custom, I would go to this convalescent home to visit one of the church members there. Except visiting this church member in particular was a lot harder for me than doing some of the other hospital visits that I did. This church member had prostate cancer. And at that point in his life, it wasn't responsive to chemo any longer. And so the cancer had moved into his bones. And so functionally, we were just waiting until the Lord took him at that point. But he was, he was wasting away, he'd lost a lot of weight, and he was on really high doses of pain medication to help him manage the pain. And so we couldn't really talk. He wasn't coherent all the time. And so a lot of times I would just sit there to, to be with him. And the reason that visiting this church member was more challenging than others wasn't because of his medical condition, although that was part of it. But this church member was my grandfather. And so the last few months of his life, I would see him daily and just kind of see him waste away as, as he entered the presence of the Lord. There's one day, though, that I remember very vividly. And as I said, he, he had a lot of hallucinations and different things because of his pain meds. So like I said, I usually just sat by his bedside for a while and then eventually would, would tell him bye and then tell him, give him a hug and tell him I would see him the next day. But this one day, it was the last kind of clear, coherent moment that he had with me. And so as I went to leave that day, I went, uh, went to hug him and just tell him that I would see him again the next day. And as I leaned in to give him a hug, he, I just remember very clearly, he whispered into my ear uh, and he said, Adam, I'm sorry it has to be this way. And I mean, what do you say to that? Right? It's my grandfather who I loved. And in one sense, he was right. 
that it was sad that this is how he would be living out his remaining days, that I couldn't really talk to him very much or have a relationship with him at that point. But on the, on the other hand, there was something inside me that just saw how wrong this situation seemed. I mean, he had wasted away, he wasn't coherent, and everything inside me said that it, it wasn't supposed to be this way, that it didn't have to be this way. And that same indignation about the wrongness of the world that I felt at that point, there's bigger events, of course, that happen in our world where, where I felt that, but on a more personal level, that same indignation that I felt occurred almost exactly six years ago, and it was right before Anna and I got married. But I received the news that I had not one, but I had two autoimmune conditions, and neither of which are curable. And as I asked questions about them, I came to discover and learn that an autoimmune condition is where your immune system attacks your body. So the, the system that God had designed to protect us from viruses and bacteria and disease, that system was actually harming my body and it was causing harm and sickness in my body. And so an autoimmune condition is the very definition of the world not working as it should. And so I bear in my body a daily reminder of Genesis 3 that the world will not work and does not work as it originally was intended. So the entrance of sin in the world affected relationships with humanity and one another, with God and with nature. And so none of these domains work as God originally intended them to. And so Genesis, as you remember, opens with God creating this good world where God gives it to man to rule over and to be fruitful and to multiply and fill it. So humanity dwells in the garden with God living in his presence, and he commands them to live under his rule and his reign. But as we talked about a few weeks ago, the serpent then tempts Adam and Eve, and they disobey God, and they seek to live under, under their own rule and their own reign. And so Genesis 3 contains what is often called the curse, So the reason it's called that is because it's God's words to the serpent and to the ground in particular, but God curses the serpent and he says that he will put enmity between the serpent seed and Eve's seed. He increases, God increases Eve's pain in childbearing. There's conflict between Adam and Eve that will now occur. And moreover, the ground itself is cursed so that Adam's work will no longer be easy thorns and thistles will be produced from the ground. Life doesn't work as it was originally intended. And so nature itself now is at war with humanity. And so we see the origins of disease, of natural disasters and wars, among other things, in Genesis 3. Then in Genesis 4, as Kenny talked about last week, Cain slays Abel, demonstrating that sin has been passed down to Adam and Eve's descendants. And Cain's descendants then continue in that pattern of sin. And so the spread of sin to subsequent generations is actually made most clear in our passage this morning. And so there's two ideas I want us to see in our passage this morning. And they're seemingly contrary ideas, but they actually go together. But the first one is that though sin has entered this world, though the curse has occurred, Humanity still continues in God's image. That's the first idea we'll see. And the second idea is about the, spre- the continual spread of sin and death. And so those are the two ideas we're going to focus on. 
And I want us to first look at the idea that humanity continues in the image of God. So you can turn to Genesis 5. And before we read God's word, I want to just pause and pray for our time this morning. Lord, you know, this is a passage of scripture that I, outside of a few weeks ago, have not really focused on very much and meditated on. And so, Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts to receive that which you have for us this morning. Lord, you know the, the different situations that we're coming in um, bearing, whether it's joys or whether it's sorrows. And so, Lord, I pray that you would meet us in those situations and that your word w- would come alive to us and that your spirit would open our minds and hearts to receive, that you would speak through me as well this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis 5, we're going to just read verses 1 through 3. We'll eventually tackle the rest of it, but I want to just focus on the first three verses right now. It says, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. So I want to pause there for a moment. But these verses take us back to creation, specifically to Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And the question is why? I mean, we've covered Genesis 1 already so far. We, we, this is all information we already have. So why is the author taking us back to Genesis 1? And I think the main reason here is to affirm humanity being made in the image of God still. So even though sin has entered the world, humanity still retains the image of God. So it says that Adam was made in the likeness of God. And then it also says that when Adam had Seth, Seth was made in his likeness, in his image. So it's demonstrating that the image of God continues on through Adam to Seth and through all subsequent generations. So that's what we're, the passage is trying to emphasize to us here. But beyond just humanity still being made in the image of God in spite of sin, we also see the idea of what it looks like to live in the image of God, what that, what that means. And so I want to jump down to verse 21 where it talks about Enoch. It says, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. So there's a a distinct break in the genealogy at this point. We'll read it a little more later. But the basic pattern that we have up to this point is it says there so-and-so was born and they lived so many years before he had a son and then he lived so many more years and had other sons and daughters and then he died. So that's what the typical pattern is here. But here Enoch's intimacy with God is emphasized and it's highlighted in the phrase Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah. And so this communion that Enoch has with God is actually reminiscent of what Adam and Eve had in the garden where God walks in the garden with them. And so, so like them, Enoch also walks with God. And so this, char- this is 
indicative of a, a lifestyle that's characterized by devotion to God. And so because of Enoch's faithfulness, he actually doesn't die. So when it says that God took him, that's not just a euphemism for the fact that he died because several other times in this chapter, the author does say he died um, in terms of the other descendants of Adam. But here it says God took him because Enoch walked with God. So because of his faithfulness, Enoch avoids the effects of sin and avoid the, avoids the effects of the curse. And he's one of only two people to do so. So Elijah is the other one in 2 Kings, if you're wondering. But Enoch gives us an example of what it means to be made in the image of God. And that's walking with him intimately. So we see here that the image of God continues in humanity even after the fall. And Enoch gives us an example of that. So what does that mean for us? So in terms of being made in the image of God still, there's a lot we can say here. But first, it means that every person we encounter is made in God's image. So Christian or not, we are, all humanity is made in God's image. No amount of sin in that person obscures that image. It's been marred, and sometimes we have trouble seeing the image of God in other people, but it's still in us. And so what that means is every person that we encounter is worthy of dignity and respect. And so I was trying to think, just ways that we don't live that out. So what are ways that we don't treat each other with dignity and respect? And there's obviously a lot of ways, um, unfortunately, that we could talk about. But the, the one I wanted to focus on for just a little bit is, is the fact that we don't often speak well to those who disagree with us. That's, I think that's an area where we most don't treat others as made in the image of God. And so, and I see this in non-Christians, of course, you watch the news for more than two minutes and you can kind of see this or any cable news channel for that matter. But even among Christians, you know, when I read social media and see how Christians are treating others, you read blogs, or um, if you read the comment section of any blog entry, you will be very convinced of humanity's depravity at that point. But I think that's the area where it it astounds me actually how uncharitable we can be toward others, both to their faces and behind their backs, neither obviously of which is good. But as, as Christians, we're free to disagree on various issues. There's obviously certain issues we, we shouldn't and don't disagree on. But in general, there's a lot of different issues in this world that we can disagree on, but we need to do so respectfully and without resorting to name calling or sarcasm, which is really difficult in a culture that celebrates those quick, witty, and cutting remarks and comments we can make. So even thinking about this is somewhat convicting because I think of how often after a particularly contentious conversation I'll have with someone, I'll leave and think, of this one great line I could have said to just shut down the conversation, I'll think, oh, I should have said that. But in reality, that's not really a good thing, right? Because it's never something positive I'm going to say about somebody else. It's usually some way that I could have just cut them down. And, And when we're honest, I think all of us have those same thoughts as well. And James 3 actually mentions how we can bless God with our mouths and then turn around and curse man who is made in the image of God. And James remarks very clearly, these things ought not to be so. And so I think the the supposed anonymity of the internet also makes this worse, where people say things, like I said, in comment sections, where they would never say to someone's face. And as Christians in particular, 
even if it's anonymous, we still need to speak respectfully with other people, even as we disagree. And then also like Enoch, we're to live lives of devotion to God. We won't go into this in depth, but we're to walk with God in fellowship. We're to worship him, pray to him, learn more about him and tell others about him. And, and one of the ways that we walk with God in intimacy is treating other people in, as made in the image of God. So it's the first element of our passage I wanted to look at, that though sin has entered the world, humanity, Adam and his descendants, and all of us are still made in the image of God. And Enoch displays that image. The second point of our text, which is where I want to spend most of our time, illustrates that death and sin continue to spread throughout humanity until humanity must be destroyed. So I want to actually jump to chapter six first, and then we'll jump back into the genealogy. But we'll start in chapter six, which, which communicates very clearly about the spread of sin and how heinous sin has become in such a way that God determines that he needs to, to, to wipe out humanity. So we'll start in verses one through four. When man began to multiply in the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The first question is, what is going on in this passage? (laughs) Um, There's a lot of things that we could cover. There's a lot of questions that arise from this and I want to cover some of them quickly, but also don't want us to miss the overall purpose and point of this passage because we could get so bogged down in the details and views and different things that we kind of miss what this passage is even intending to communicate. So the first question is, who are the sons of God? That phrase seems kind of out of place or it's actually never occurred up to this point in Genesis. So this isn't an easy issue by any means. There's, I think, four main kind of competing views on this. And I'm not going to go into all of them. If you want to talk about them, you're happy to email me or talk to me afterward. But I wrestled with this for a while. But generally, of all the main theories, I'm inclined toward the idea that sons of God is a reference to angels and more specifically to fallen angels. Now, a couple of reasons I think that is elsewhere in the Old Testament, the term sons of God actually does refer to angels. So if you read Job 1 in particular, that's clear. Also, the New Testament authors, or at least a few of them, refer to this incident, and they speak of it as referring to angels. So if you read Jude, if you read 2 Peter, both of them refer to this incident in Genesis 6, and they're talking about angels there. It's also the oldest known view among Jewish sources. So these are extra biblical, so that doesn't mean they're authoritative necessarily, but this is the oldest view, which again doesn't mean it's the right view, but it does lend credibility to it at least. So anyway, whatever's going on here, it's odd. I'll at least say that much. And every view has its issue. So there's no perfect view, which is why I wrestled with it. But the primary focus here that the author is communicating is the transgression of God's boundaries. And the reason I say that is that there's actually echoes of Genesis 3 in this passage. So it says here that the sons of God saw 
that the daughters of men were good or attractive, as our translations usually say, and they took. So they saw good and took. Just like in Genesis 3, Eve saw that the fruit was good and she took it and she ate it. So Moses is intentionally pointing us back to Genesis 3 to make it clear that whatever exactly is going on, God's boundaries are being broken and they're being transgressed. And so humanity cannot blur the lines that God has made. So divine intervention is necessary here to halt this evil. And so as a result, God says that man will only live 120 more years until what we have obviously know as the flood comes. The other question I'm going to just cover briefly is the Nephilim. So who were those people? Uh, Kenny actually, <laughs> before I started prepping, pointed this out to me, but if you Google search Nephilim and then look up images, you find some really interesting, odd things. And so you find a lot of pictures that were very obviously Photoshopped. Um, so if you're ever bored later this week, that's something you can do. But Nephilim literally means fallen ones. And so in the surrounding culture, so in Israel's neighbors, they, these mighty men, these Nephilim were viewed as the product of the marriages between gods and humans. And so Israel's neighbors had myths that viewed these as superhumans who were part divine and part human. And what I think the text is telling us here is that myths about these people being God kings or semi-divine are actually not true. Though, that they, though they were mighty, they're still flesh, ultimately, as the text tells us. So my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. So the Nephilim, even though there were these myths about them, they're still flesh, and they would, in fact, die in the flood, just like everybody else would. So there's this polemic against these, these myths about these semi-gods that were going on. So that's what I think is being communicated here. Verses 5 through 8, though, to continue on that. So 1 through 4 tells us about transgressions of God's boundaries. And then 5 through 8 continues, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So to give you a sweep of our passage, chapter five, verse one, talked about the creation of humanity. So with Adam, but now the end of our passage is talking about the destruction of mankind. So you have the creation to the destruction of mankind in our chapter or in our section. So sin has become so rampant that God is grieved over it in his creation of man. Now, when we honestly think about this and read this, we might think, isn't this, isn't this a, a little bit like God's overreacting? I mean, is sin that bad, really that bad that he needs to wipe out all of humanity? And I, so there's two things that I've tried to keep in mind with this. So the first one, it's interesting, again, to compare this with the flood stories of Israel's neighbors. So there's some Babylonian flood stories that we have. And in those flood stories, actually, the Babylonian gods want to wipe out humanity because there's too many of them, and they create a noise that's too loud to tolerate, which is kind of odd, obviously. And so I 
jokingly would say, I think the writer had toddlers or something, and that's why that was the issue. But those stories, actually all of them, they lack the moral outrage that is present in our text, that God is acting in accordance with his ethical demands, and that's why he's outraged over, over humanity's conduct. So that's the first thing is comparing it to, the, to Israel's neighbors. But the second thing is just looking at the words very carefully here. It says that every intention, only evil continually. So this wasn't this temporary state that humanity was necessarily in, but it's this unrelenting, unrepentant state that humanity persists in. And so we see here the intensity and the extent of evil, where it says that it's great in all the earth. We see its inwardness, how it's every intention. And we see that it's, it's, abs, it's absolute sway where it excludes everything good, where it's only evil. And we see the habitual and continuous nature of it, where it's only evil continually. And so man here is described as hopelessly corrupt. So there isn't really anything positive in our first seven verses, at least here. So what was started in the garden with Adam and Eve disobeying God has now become the inclination of every human heart. And so sin is ultimately against God's character and that's why it grieves him. God isn't emotionally unconnected with his creation. He's, he's actively involved in it. And so God determines that the only way forward is to wipe humanity out and start again. But even though God resolves to destroy humanity, there's still hope here in Noah and his family where it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And so Noah stands out from his family just like Enoch did. So Enoch walked with God and Noah found favor here. So in six, one through eight, the big picture of it is it's trying to show the, the rampant nature of sin and how it's spread and how heinous it's become. Chapter five also demonstrates this spread of sin through the spread of death in particular. So I want to go back to chapter five and I'm going to read this so you can see the pattern a few times and then I'm going to eventually just kind of read selected portions of it at least. So verse four, the days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. I'm going to skip down. Thus, all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Thus, all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Thus, all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. Let's skip down to verse 25, since we read the Enoch section already. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Thus, all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, 
out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 770 years and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So what do you notice here? What phrase is repeated? Death and he died. It's repeated eight times, in fact. So even though each of these men are born in the image of God, they all die. So God is fulfilling two promises, actually, in this passage. The first promise is from Genesis 1, where humanity will be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so we see that being fulfilled. And that's a good thing, right? So it mentions a son, and then it mentions that they have other sons and daughters. And so the promise of Genesis 1 is being fulfilled. The problem is the promise of Genesis 3 is also being fulfilled, where God told Adam and Eve that they would die. And so they do. They die, and all their descendants continue to die as well. So the curse in Genesis 3 is reaching its full effect. And so the phrase, he died, is this drumbeat that is echoed mournfully throughout this passage. So I want to spend the rest of our time and what will be the majority of our time here, because when we, we pause to consider it, this is the world that we live in. We have this sense of something being wrong in this world when we get sick, when we break a bone, when we see disease, when we see natural disasters, when we wake up sore the next morning after rigorous exercise or not so rigorous exercise for some of us. Um, When doing the same activity brings more pain the older we get. When there's frailty in our bodies that's unexpected, we have the sense that something is off. So several years ago, I was a hospital chaplain for a brief time, and you you meet all kinds of people, of course, in the hospital, and it's interesting. So the people in the hospital obviously don't want to be there for clear reasons. Then the visitors, friends, family also don't want to be there. And I think one of the reasons a hospital is an uncomfortable place for us is that we're reminded of the frailty of life, and we're confronted with our own mortality. So we see death all around us. When we read the news, people die in war, children die from lack of food and water, there's hurricanes, earthquakes, these all lead to death. Sometimes that all seems really far away from us, right? It's in the news, so it doesn't seem as close to home. But in our own lives, we actually see the effects of Genesis 3 also. So we have grandparents who die, parents, husbands, wives, friends, even children. Some people die from old age, Others die from cancer. Some people die in the prime of their youth from accidents. So whatever the cause, there's something in us that has this inner sense of how wrong it is. We notice this most acutely when someone young dies. We think that they died before their time necessarily. But we have to admit, even when someone old dies, it's unnatural. It's It's odd. I mean, I understand why we do this, but when someone older dies, we say they died of natural causes, which I get, and I don't know how else to phrase it, but in a very real sense, it's not natural for people to die. That's not how God designed the world. God didn't design humanity to die, and so it isn't natural for that to happen. So death brings that feeling in us that something is wrong to the surface most strongly, even though we feel that in other moments. I mean, even in our quiet moments when we lay awake at night, 
you, if you're like me, have this sense of something being off, this nagging feeling that you can't get rid of. And we try to drown it out through entertainment, but we can't shake it. So the best kind of example I can think of with this is when Anna and I lived in Kentucky. We drove to Baltimore, which is about a nine-hour drive. And we got there, and we were excited to be there and excited to be in a new place, and we were going to go see Washington, D.C. But I had this nagging sense for the first, actually, I think it was 72 hours that I had left the oven on. And I honestly, I just could not be at peace the whole time we were there uh, until... I found out that it wasn't on, but that's, that's kind of what I think it is for us, that even in, in our better moments, we have this sense that there's something off, and it keeps us from having perfect peace. And so this feeling of something being wrong, I think when we're honest, is shared by all of us, as we're confronted with death and disease and famine and disaster and drought we have a longing for things to change and to be different. So we can echo Lamech's cry in Genesis 5 where he longs for someone to bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And so we too have a longing for the relief from our painful toil. So the question is, what is that feeling that something's off? The best way I think it's been described is in one of his letters J.R.R. Tolkien said this, We all long for Eden, and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most most human, is still soaked with the sense of exile. And so I think that nagging feeling that we have is the sense of exile. Because the reality is, is we're confronted with the brokenness of the world and it doesn't feel like this is the way things should be. The reality is that we are in exile. Eden has been lost. And our passage highlights the loss of Eden with the constant haunting refrain, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. And yet, we were created for Eden and we're constantly trying to get back to it. One writer said it this way, All our long life is waking up to who we are after the fall. We are broken and coming to understand this is a weight unlike anything we may otherwise bear for it is the root of all of our burdens. So one song also puts it this way. Can't you feel it in your bones? Something isn't right here. Something that you've always known, but you don't know why. Because every time the sun goes down, we face another night here waiting for the world to spin around just to survive. But every little boy grows up and he's haunted by the heart that died, longing for the world that was before the fall. So lest you think I'm overly focusing on the negative aspects of this passage and that Genesis becomes more optimistic later, it doesn't, just to shatter any expectations. Even though there's hope in Noah, Ultimately, Noah fails also. Then there's the Tower of Babel, where humanity unites in opposition to God. So Genesis doesn't really get any better. Now, God is still at work, and God is still carrying out his purposes in the midst of sin and evil. But from a human perspective, Genesis doesn't improve. Even Abraham, who is is this virtuous person that we, is a man of faith, he still fails. He still sins. 
And after Cain killing Abel, sin doesn't stop. It just continues to grow and manifest itself in new ways. So we intuitively know the brokenness of the world and we may delude or amuse away the feelings of brokenness that we see and feel. But when we look outside of the suburbs and affluence, outside of iPhones and viral videos, we see hunger, destruction, and evil. And when we're honest, we also see it in our own hearts as well, that evil lurks in us. When we consider how dark some of our thoughts actually are, we become alarmed, even as Christians. So as we consider the great evil around us and within us, we recognize that sometimes nothing in this world can take that ache away, that longing for something different. I was reminded this week uh, that some friends of Anna and mine died in a car accident back in July, and they were 28 years old. And we spent some time with their parents back in December. And I saw very clearly in talking to them that some griefs will never go away. I mean, you never get over losing your children. And to again quote Tolkien, alas, there are some wounds that cannot be wholly cured, said Gandalf. I fear it may be so with mine, said Frodo. There's no real going back. Though I may come to the Shire, it will not seem the same, for I shall not be the same. I am wounded with knife, sting, and tooth, and a long burden. Where shall I find rest? So some things in this world, this side of the world, will never be fully healed. And I think as Christians, we can sometimes move too quickly to the solution. And the reality is we need to let the problem sink deep into our hearts and grieve the wrongness and evil that exists in our world. And at the end of the day, I don't have any easy, simple answers for you because sin and death are real and they've entered our world and they've wreaked havoc on it. We've left Eden and we can't go back, at least right now. Yet there is this intense longing to return, this ache with the brokenness of the world. Romans 8 tells us that creation itself groans in decay. So what I first want to say is, as you experience and feel that ache over the brokenness and wrongness of this world, don't hide it. Don't entertain it away. There's goodness in it because it points us to something better than we have right now. So even in the midst of darkness, there is much beauty. As one author said, there must be some deeper purpose behind this painfully slow redemption of the world, a purpose that turns the devil's own tools against him, including our sorrow, which when we don't despair only peaks our longing. And that's what we want. We want our longing to be heightened. We don't want to be satisfied by anything in this world. We want our longing for a restored world to be peaked because that ultimately is what our longing is for, is for a restored creation, one where death doesn't reign, one where cancer does not take our loved ones, where all people have enough to eat, where children don't die in their youth, where people don't hold grudges, where there's no abuse, where we don't have to worry about earthquakes or droughts or hurricanes or tsunamis or famines or disease. That's the day that we all long for. That's the world that we all long for. So how is that day going to be possible? How is that world going to come? And in the midst of destruction and evil of this world, Jesus came. 
And he came not just to take away the sins that lie in my heart, my personal sins, though he did do that, but he came to take away sin that affects all of creation. And so the good news, the gospel is not just forgiveness of your sins and my sins, though it is certainly that. But it's the good news that when Jesus died on the cross and when he was resurrected, he broke the power of sin in all of creation. Jesus came to provide forgiveness to you and I so that we can have a relationship with God. And he also came to restore the entire creation and everything that's in it. And so that's ultimately what our destination is. Our destination is not heaven in the sense that when we die, our bodies stay in the ground buried and our spirits go up, our souls go up to be with the Lord. Though that certainly is true. Our ultimate destination is for Jesus to return, to bring a new heavens and new earth, and for our souls and our bodies to be reunited again and our bodies to be resurrected. Because our longing is for something tangible, something material, And it's for a redeemed earth, not just for an end to suffering, but the beginning of a new and richer life. One where we see God face to face, where he dwells with us. That's what our true longing is actually for. And the good news of Jesus is that in the midst of suffering, death, pain, evil, that new and richer life begins now. We won't fully experience it until our bodies are raised again. But when we turn to him for forgiveness of sins, that resurrection life starts today and we look forward to it when it is ultimately consummated. As one song puts it, don't lose heart. Though your body's wasting away, your soul is not, it's being remade. Don't lose heart. Your body will rise and never decay. And that good news doesn't take away the sting, the ache, the pain, the heartbreak, and the grief. Some things in this world may never be healed. But the good news does tell us that there's hope. And of all the things that I hope you leave with or that I want you to leave with this morning, it's hope. I often want to think of something very tangible for you to walk away from, something you can do as you walk away to apply the message. But this is ultimately what I want you to walk away with, hope, because that's what gives us strength to persevere in the midst of difficulty and trials and evil that exists all around us. The brokenness we see and experience points us to an end of that brokenness when all of creation will be whole again. So the daily toll of Genesis 3 of the curse that I experience in my body reminds me that one day I will rise again and I will be freed from it. So I will open my eyes with a resurrected body and I will instinctively and intuitively know that my body is now whole again. And I'll look and we'll look on a sky that looks similar to the one we look outside now, but it's different. It's more complete, more pure. And we'll hear laughter and we will laugh. And that laughter will be made more profound, more rich because of the sorrow that preceded it. Not in spite of the sorrow, but it'll be more rich because of the sorrow that preceded it. And so we labor here and now. We work for God's kingdom in the midst of evil, and we wait and long for his return when all things will be made new. So one more time, quote from Return of the King by Tolkien. I didn't just, this is an exegesis of Tolkien, just to be clear. (laughs) It's a lot of good stuff. This is from Genesis 5 still, but... Anyway, the end of the return of the king says this. 
At last, he, at, at last he gasped, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed. And the sound was like music or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. It fell upon his ears like the echo of all the joys he had ever known. But he himself burst into tears. Then as a sweet rain will pass down a wind of spring and the sun will shine out the clearer, his tears ceased and his laughter welled up and laughing he sprang from his bed. How do I feel? He cried. Well, I don't know how to say it. I feel, I feel, he waved his arms in the air. I feel like spring after winter and sun on the leaves and like trumpets and harps and all the songs I have ever heard. Revelation 21 says it like this. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So that's the day that we long for, the day where bodies will rise and not decay, the day where all of the things that have brought us sorrow in this world will no longer be there, and we will dwell in the presence of God and we will look upon his face. And so the day that we long for and ache for is the day where everything sad becomes untrue. So let's pray. Lord, you know the griefs that we carry, the sorrows that we feel. Lord Jesus, you yourself wept at the tomb of Lazarus. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to not deny the grief that we feel and deny the brokenness of this world, but that you would see it and that we would, it would increase our longing for the day that you will return and make all things new. But I pray that that vision of the new creation will give us hope. It will give us perseverance in the midst of, of so much sorrow and difficulty. Lord, use that in our hearts and in our lives. Lord, we thank you that you have very clearly given us a picture of what the future will look like. And we long for that day. Pray that you would cultivate it in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.